This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is David Suchar. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its third season. In our first two seasons, my good friend Buzz Tarlow produced 25 episodes on a variety of timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, I expect to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome back to Construction Law Today. Today we have a very interesting topic and two great guests. The topic is early dispute resolution. We'll be talking about it as EDR today, and that is the dispute resolution process involving a neutral that allows for resolution of disputes within 30 to 60 days. We have with us two guests again. The first is Peter Silverman. Peter is a partner at the Shoemaker Firm. He's based in Toledo, Ohio. His practice is focused on commercial litigation and general business counsel, and he has significant experience as a neutral, including as a mediator and arbitrator, having served as an arbitrator since 1986 and a mediator since 1990. He's on the AAA's Large Complex Case Arbitration Panel, and he's co-chair of the Early Dispute Resolution Committee of the ABA Section on Dispute Resolution. He is also cited in, I think, every single article that talks about EDR. Uh, So glad to have you here, Peter. Tell us a bit about your practice, if you would. It's a general commercial litigation practice with a significant amount of time spent as an arbitrator or a mediator. But my general litigation is what got me to EDR, just frustration over how much money is wasted and how clients are hurt by uh, extensive litigation. Thank you, Peter. And we also have with us Brett Henson. He is also a partner at the Shoemaker Firm. He's based in Sarasota, Florida. He is a board certified Florida bar construction lawyer, and he focuses in the areas of commercial and construction litigation. Brett, why don't you tell us a bit about your practice? Sure, thanks, David. Um, I've been practicing at Shoemaker now for a little over four years, predominantly handling Uh, all facets of construction law, both on the transactional side, in addition to litigation and dispute resolution. So I appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast today and uh, to have a conversation with you and Peter about EDR. Thank you, Brett. So this discussion follows up on a couple others we've had on the podcast, episode 16 about guided choice and episode 17 about neutral evaluation. So other programs involving neutrals. Let me start by asking you, Peter, EDR, what is it and how did it come about? So I just briefly mentioned that um, over time as a trial lawyer, litigation can kind of corrupt your soul. You ruin other people, other people ruin your clients. Clients spend 
exorbitant amounts of sums you know that could be disproportionate to what's at stake and so i always wanted to figure out a way to do it better as a younger lawyer I had a pretty good sense that when cases come in, I had a pretty good sense of where they are. And then as I grew in my practice, I became more confident in that and realized that through risk analysis and other tools, we could resolve disputes early. And so we developed protocols for doing that based on uh, risk analysis, ethics, and other items that help guide people through. How does early dispute resolution work in practice? So you can do it from a very simple point of view or complex. And complex would only be in very complex cases. But the simple point of view is that once you've gone through our training, which is a day and a half of training, you understand the ethical issues, you understand risk analysis, decision trees, how you can work with parties on it. And so what I do now with uh, my mediations is rather than scare people with early dispute resolution and protocols, I just send them a letter and say that I think mediation often is wasteful and, and that I'd like to just get started tomorrow as soon as you sign the letter and we'll set a mediation date 30 days out, but I'd like us to try and get this resolved in the next couple of weeks. And um, then there's four steps. One is simplifying the issues in the case. Two is looking to see whether either side needs information. So in construction, there, there are generally will be documents and maybe even talking to other people. So we have a procedure for doing that that protects both sides. Third is applying risk analysis. So clients understand what are the risks, what are the costs, and have uh, agency to resolve it. And then fourth is the negotiation procedure. That's a simplified four steps. And before you even get to the four steps, I've read in, in your literature about necessary conditions, yes. about a, a series of agreements that parties must be willing to accept before they start this process. Can you talk a bit about those necessary yeah. conditions? And so this is something that I'm now just convinced and anyone who wants to do this, this is the most important thing. You need to have ethical counsel and reasonable counsel. You need to have ethical and reasonable clients, both of whom commit in good faith to seek a fair resolution. If you don't have that, don't do early dispute resolution. It doesn't work. And we all know lawyers like that, you know, tough guys, cowboys, whatever. Um, but if you get really good lawyers who know their business and good clients committed to resolving things, it works tremendous. But now I've now learned if I don't have that, I will not do early dispute resolution with people. We've covered guided choice before on this podcast. Let me ask you this, Brett, uh, what's the difference between early dispute resolution and guided choice? I think there's some, some similarities and differences, but I think one of the key differences that I see between guided choice and EDR is sort of what Peter was alluding to in terms of forecasting and decision-making. So, as I've read through uh, sort of the, the theory of EDR and the practice of EDR, 
uh, what really stands out to me as a, as a construction lawyer is the, the procedures that are at play with EDR are really informed by a lot of the non-legal literature on how we make decisions, how we evaluate risk and those sorts of things. And I think the protocols are really designed to take those sorts of issues into account. Uh, behavioral factors that affect decision-making. Uh, when Peter talks about decision trees and risk analysis, that's a pretty rigorous and systematic way to evaluate you know, what we lawyers were taught in law school as being sort of the best and worst possible outcomes. So I think it provides a much greater level of sophistication in terms of training both neutrals and attorneys as to how to evaluate cases on the front end. So I think that's that's one key emphasis that we see in EDR that we don't necessarily see in guided choice. The other benefit that stood out to me when I first looked at EDR and compared it to guided choice is that there are some built-in protocols um, that the parties can agree to before a dispute arises. So, you know, guided choice says, you know, one of the key tenets of, of guided choice is that, you know, if a parties, parties find themselves in a dispute situation, they're hiring the mediator to, at that stage, design and diagnose what the procedures are going to be both during a mediation process, but also if the parties can't reach a resolution through mediation to customize and tailor perhaps an arbitration or something to that effect. Both EDR and, and Guided Choice provide for that, but those are two major differences that I see. You mentioned, Brett, the construction documents, I think, are processes by which parties can agree to an early dispute resolution process. Can you talk us through in the construction context how parties might agree to an early dispute resolution process in their contract documents? Sure. Um, you know, I think that for you know folks that are familiar with the various industry form documents, whether they be AIA form documents or consensus docs, you know, most people are familiar with the fact that there is, you know, there are mandatory conditions before you can get to a binding dispute resolution proceeding, whether that be litigation or arbitration. And the default process, obviously, in both of those documents is to have a mediation before either an arbitration or a litigation. So in terms of modifying contract documents, parties that are considering implementing EDR procedures really should be looking at that mediation provision because essentially what EDR could do would be to take the place of a mandatory mediation that takes place before an arbitration or a litigation. So I think that's really the starting point. And, you know, Peter and his team have put together some pretty simple clauses that can be integrated. It does become somewhat complicated due to the multi-party nature of projects because you've got, you know, at least, you know, two different agreements between the prime parties in addition to, you know, subcontractors and subconsultants and, and those people that come downstream. In construction contract docs, we sometimes have the ability to allow for dispute resolution boards. How is having EDR built into the contract different than having a dispute resolution board? Well, um, you know, at least I can speak from my perspective as a Florida construction lawyer. The majority of projects where we see dispute resolution boards in the state of Florida tend to be horizontal construction projects that involve state you know, transportation entities. It's pretty atypical to see a dispute resolution board on a commercial project like a, a condo building or a hotel or multifamily project. So really what it would look like on, on one of those sorts of private construction projects would be to have 
the EDR process kick in once an, an initial decision maker has rendered a decision. So if the architect is the initial decision maker, like we have under the AIA family of documents, if there's still a dispute, then the parties could could go down the path of early dispute resolution at that phase. You know, keeping in mind that the parties would get, have a continuing obligation to perform under the contract. What about you mentioned? Brett, multi-party issues and construction disputes, and the, the common construction dispute involves multiple parties. Either Peter or Brett, maybe I'll ask either one of you to jump in and talk about, is it possible for EDR to work when you have complex multi-party situations involving insurance coverage issues, for example? Is it possible to solve these issues in 30 to 60 days? So, uh, I'll chime in and just say yes, and you've got to tailor it. So some might not be 30 to 60 days, but in most construction disputes, you kind of know what it what's going to be key, and you're going to have to go through all kinds of things to get to the key issues, key documents. And so the process forces you to simplify the issues to go to everyone and say, look, what do we all need to look at so we're comfortable discussing this and force parties to be very limited in what they request, try to get a set of common documents to people so people understand it might be emails or texts, whatever, drawings. And then once everybody's comfortable, then you can start the discussion process but it tries to cut through all the, the layers of nonsense that you generally go through in a mediation and cut right to the chase. And just to kind of add to what Peter was discussing, I think it really depends upon the nature of the dispute. Putting aside the you know, multi-party construction defect matter that involves insurance, insurance coverage type issues, uh, let's say you have a scenario where you're representing a subcontractor or supplier and you get into a dispute with the contractor over final payment. And, you know, the contractor presents you with, you know, a deductive change order that has a number of claims identified within it. I think EDR in that circumstance is very helpful in terms of resolving the dispute because ultimately what the parties need is a narrow set of information to understand, you know, to what extent has the contractor properly documented its delay claim? To what extent has the contractor provided adequate backup for its deductive change order? So I think resolving a dispute through EDR within 30 to 60 days is very feasible in a circumstance like that. I think that when we're talking about something like a multi-party construction defect lawsuit that requires the involvement of many people, perhaps the time deadlines get extended. And I think this is one of the realities that we see in some of the literature about guided choice. And that is, it very well may be that we need to institute binding uh, dispute resolution procedures to trigger insurance coverage. So it really depends, I think. But Peter, do you have something to add? Yeah, I was just going to add that in a delay case, you might need an expert. And so that you might say to all the parties, let's pick somebody we all respect and we have procedures for somebody to come in without prejudice and give what we would call a sufficient information report, which is just basically say, I've looked at this and um, I think this is what happened. That's all you have to say. It's without prejudice. Nobody's bound by it. 
but it gives everyone an ability, again, to do a risk analysis, to look at the probability, well, this person makes sense, so let's uh, evaluate the claim that way. But we're trying to think through all the steps and how to simplify them, and again, cut to the chase. We'll be right back with more Construction Law Today. PMA Consultants is a leading provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. Our experts have a wealth of experience in identifying, analyzing, preparing, and presenting claims and disputes on construction and engineering projects. PMA is proud to be a longtime supporter of the ABA Construction Law Forum and its members. Connect with our construction claims experts on our website, pmaconsultants.com. Welcome back to Construction Law Today. Peter and Brett, when we broke, we were talking about specific examples of how EDR can work in practice. One question that came to mind for me is, in this process where you reveal bad documents and bad information, uh, what's to stop a party from using that information against you in subsequent litigation? So there's two ways this comes out. One, this issue comes up all the time. And as a neutral, what I say to people is, look, you can hand it over now and allow parties to filter that into their risk analysis and let your clients make good decisions. Or you could spend tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars on discovering depositions and it'll come out in nine months. So the idea is get it out now, let everybody see it. It might mean a lot, it might not mean a lot, but get it out now. The flip side to that is people will say, well, how can I know the other side has a damning document that they'll produce it? And what I say to them is that you're relying on the good faith of opposing counsel and the client, but you rely on that anyways if you're in court and discovery. And so the idea is get the information out now that's critical and let people make decisions. What about the use of EDR in practice? Can you give us an example of a situation in which EDR worked where the parties didn't expect it would work because of the complexity of the matter or the litigiousness of the parties? Uh, some situation where it worked against all odds? Um, so one, if parties are litigious and don't want to be reasonable, EDR doesn't work. Don't try it. Second, uh, the most complex case I've applied it in was a, a material supplier to a manufacturer of a household appliance. A uh, household appliance sold, maybe there were 60,000 units sold. It leaked ruined floors. And so there are all kinds of not only recall, but claims on floors and damage. There's insurer involved. And it would have been years of litigation, millions of dollars. And so what we did is, one, we hired an independent expert who both sides trusted. 
the expert used the materials, used the machinery, and ran it in repeated tests and issued a report without prejudice to either side on where the fault lied. And then we had to do an estimate of the number of recalls and insurance claims that would be coming in. And we put it before the parties and the insurance carrier and they resolved it based on the merits and based on what they would be looking at three years down the road. There, the insurance carrier was very open-minded about it because it saved the insurance carrier a tremendous amount of money. So that's the most complex case, but it shows you how flexible the process can be. That wasn't 30 to 60 days. The testing itself took, I think, 75 days. Do you face skepticism from parties who say, for example, we're a, a large insurance carrier, we're defending our client in this case, this isn't a process we know much about, and we don't know if we want to use it. Yes, I have done that. And what I say to the carrier, I try to explain to them, I mean, this is great for carriers. They're very sophisticated in risk analysis. Clients aren't. And this is a way to get it done early. So the carrier gets to put money toward liability rather than defense costs. But there is skepticism. And if there is, I just say this isn't the right process for you. You know, just to add on to that, many states, and Florida is one of them, have a mandatory pre-suit notification period on construction defect matters. And in 2017, our Florida Supreme Court determined that that 558 process could qualify as a suit, quote unquote, that would trigger coverage under a commercial general liability policy of insurance, so long as the insured received consent from the insurer to participate in such a process. And I think, generally speaking, there's a trend toward a fairly broad definition of what constitutes a suit under a commercial general liability policy. And one of the thoughts that I had in looking at the EDR language relative to some of those cases is, you know, the parties could put into their contract that this EDR process is essentially an alternative dispute resolution proceeding uh, and including that language for the, the express purpose of attempting to trigger coverage. Now, in that circumstance, you would still need, as Peter suggested, the consent from the carrier to provide a defense and potentially indemnify without there being a formal lawsuit or arbitration demanded. However, if you're dealing with an insurance company that does understand and appreciate risk and does understand and appreciate, you know, defense costs spend relative to indemnity spend, then perhaps it would make sense for them to participate. Do you think there's some way to get the word out about EDR to make it more common protocol that's used in resolution of cases, including cases that are already being litigated? There is, and we've got a pilot project going on in the Houston courts now. We're doing trainings all over the country. Uh, The American Arbitration Association is partnering with us and putting these on. And it's like, you know, if you have one fast food restaurant on a corner, it doesn't do too well. If you get three fast food restaurants in those corners, everybody does great. So it's really a matter of training people and getting past their initial skepticism. And once they know the tools, it works. Pretty soon clients will be demanding it because they'll realize they don't have to spend all that money. But it's a process now. 
you talk about training and I'm, I'm wondering about the nuts and bolts of a training process. Do clients, do outside counsel, do mediators, do all of us have to go through some separate process to learn about this before we go through it the first time? So for a mediator, a mediator should. They're very powerful tools. There's strong ethical issues. And we run the EDR Institute and we certify people who've gone through the training. Lawyers don't need to go through it. It's, um, it can be intuitive for them, but still they get, you get much better at it if you go through the training. Same with uh, outside counsel or same with inside in-house counsel. And you could, we do hour and a half trainings, two and a half hour trainings, but for mediators, we do a full day and a half. The process itself, the 30 day process, if it is to work, in reading about it, it seems like it could be somewhat intense. You have document production going on at the same time you're preparing witnesses, at the same time you may be learning the case as outside counsel. Do you have any recommendations for folks who are going through this about how best to approach it? So the biggest hindrance to speed is the lawyers, right? Lawyers, we get a complaint, we as for an extension for and we don't need to do anything for 60 days so to get lawyers to move fast is hard the key as the mediator is simplify 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 uh, most cases do you don't have to speak to the other side you don't need to interview any witnesses the documents can be very narrow and that's where the mediator earns his or her money is in simplifying the case and making everybody comfortable and moving quickly on it. What are some other impediments that people have raised about the EDR process and maybe how they are not familiar with it or potential problems with it? And and if you could address a couple of those issues of how you think EDR can solve that. So one problem we've run into is in-house counsel. If you're in a big company, and you hire big, powerful law firm to do big, powerful litigation, nobody's going to second guess you. But if you try something new and innovative, you can be second guessed. So there's a certain conservatism in in-house counsel. What we do is we'll explain it. And it's really a matter of education. Some people just get it and understand it. And others are wary. But again, the really smart, ethical, problem-solving lawyers get it very quickly and really love it. You're not uh, trying to put all of us litigators out of business now, Peter and Brett, are you? There is this, uh, well, this process me, that's been going on for a couple so, hundred years. I'm not a litigator. I'm not a mediator. So, uh, <laughs> so here's how this works. One, this will be very, if this is adopted widely, it's going to be very good for very good lawyers because people will go to them because they have the judgment to do this. It will not be good for people who depend on churning things out who don't have great judgment. Right. Also, the process allows you, let's say you go through it and after 30 days, you don't have a resolution. There's a good faith dispute. The neutral can say to the parties, look, you've got the key documents. You know what this is. You've got a good faith dispute, hire an arbitrator, 
have do it as a one day hearing in 30 days and get your results and move on. So usually that ends up with the party settling that after you propose that, but there are ways to do that. And so in my practice, I end up trying a lot of uh, what I would call limited arbitrations where we've narrowed the issues. I think the other party's not um, analyzing the probability well, and we'll say, let's do a one day arbitration or two, whatever the number is, but again, speed and economy and getting to the heart of the matter. Are there arbitrators, for example, that you've dealt with that are allowing this process, EDR, to be involved in arbitrations more and more? So as I told you, we're partnering with the AAA and my hope is that the AAA would offer this when you file for arbitration, they would say, uh, you can have a parallel process, we do EDR. And so by the time your arbitrator is appointed, you may have resolved the case, or you may have narrowed it tremendously to know what limited discovery you need, and you'll be able to try it quickly. So that's my ideal and how it works out. But apart from that, if you just have an arbitrator, an arbitrator, you've got the problem of recommending mediation, et cetera. So there are division lines that make it hard. But once it comes to an arbitrator, it's a contract. Somebody says, yeah, I want you to try this issue. Did this meet the change order requirements? And that's the only issue you're going to decide. And we each have half a day and reach a decision. Arbitrators are always willing to do something like that. What about the flip side of cases that should go through this quicker process? Are there hallmarks to a dispute that you just don't think really should be the subject of early dispute resolution? The only hallmark is you have reasonable, ethical counsel and clients who are committed to it in good faith. Other than that, everything can be done this way. Peter and Brett, it has been great talking with you about early dispute resolution. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, You're welcome. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about construction law today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, David Suchar, at david.suchar at maslin.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening, and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.